Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today's episode is all about the medications involved with RSI. Our guest today is Kathy Hall. Kathy is the trauma critical care pharmacist here at Wesley and has been with the trauma team for 10 years. Kathy, would you discuss what is RSI? Even though we call it rapid sequence innovation, um, we want to make sure that we take the appropriate steps to make sure we do it safely and administer the appropriate meds so we can establish that airway as soon as possible. So looking at the medications used in RSI, it you use predominantly a sedative as well as a paralytic. But prior to jumping to the medications, we want to make sure we cover our eight P's of RSI. So the first P is preparation. So we want to make sure you have all the necessary people, equipment, medications, the patient is positioned correctly, and we have a backup plan if we do have trouble establishing that airway. Then the next P is pre-oxygenation, where we use, oh, we want to oxygenate our patient to 100% so that way when we are trying to intubate we have a little bit of oxygen reserve when we are not providing that ventilation. I know in the trauma bays we always place a nasal cannula on the patient prior to the procedure to help build up those reserves. What part comes next? Then the next option is our pre-medications which vary depending on the patient. Um, The three pre-medications that you commonly see are fentanyl, lidocaine, or atropine. The purpose behind using fentanyl is that it weakens that sympathetic response that patients will have when we go to intubate them. And it also does provide some analgesia as well as sedation to uh, before we give the paralytic. Then the next medication you might see used is lidocaine, which the thought behind lidocaine is that it lowers your intracranial pressure and then suppresses that cough reflex that could make intubation a little bit more difficult. And then last but not least, you'll see atropine sometimes requested prior to intubation. And the thought behind atropine is that it blocks that reflex bladycardia that you can see probably more common in the pediatric patient population to prevent that bradycardia that you see with intubation. In our trauma bay, a lot of times we are trying to establish that airway fairly quickly so we don't always give the pre-medications if it's more crucial to get that airway established. I will say in our pediatric population, you will see a lot of times the anesthesiologist request for pre-medication. So then once we decide to pre-medicate, you would move into your next medication, the sedative. So there's probably four common sedatives that we see used in our RSI situations. There's automidate, ketamine, midazolam, and propofol. In selection of one sedative over the other kind of varies on your patient. Um, Looking at automidate, It's pretty quick onset and a short duration, so that's your ideal sedative because you want it on quick so you can intubate and then off quickly so you can still perform your neuro assessment in your trauma patient. The nice kind of caveat about automidated, it doesn't um, have those hypotensive effects that you might see with midazolam or propofol, so it's kind of ideal for your hemodynamically unstable patient. Um, It does kind of carry a weird side effect that it can cause adrenal insufficiency um, and potentially decrease your seizure threshold. So if you have a patient that may be septic and you're intubating, it's not your kind of best choice agent because it can cause that adrenal insufficiency that may complicate your septic picture. Then looking at ketamine, it's again pretty quick onset, maybe a little bit longer duration than your automidate. Again, similar to automidate, it does not cause that hypotension that you might see with midazolam or propofol. It actually can cause hypertension or tachycardia, which might be beneficial when you're doing RSI. Um, Back in the older days, it did carry this big 
concern that it could actually increase your ICP, but those studies were in patients that had structural defects, so they had underlying um, hydrocephalus or VP. They required VP shunts, um, and it has since been used in several patients with TBIs without any concern for raising that intracranial pressure. Are there any side effects we should be aware of with ketamine? You can, some caution with ketamine, it does cause some emergent psychosis, so you can see some kind of agitation when the patients come out of, when the ketamine wears off, so just kind of be cautious of that. It affects some patients very differently. Some tolerate it just fine, and others kind of have a little psychiatric episode where they're coming off the ketamine, might be hallucinating, so just kind of to be cautious from a nursing standpoint. And then another option that you'll sometimes see used is midazolam. It's great because it has a quick onset. However, it does have a little bit longer duration of action. It can last up to about 80 minutes. So um, it might kind of complicate that neuro assessment in your traumatic brain injury patients. However, it is ideal for those patients that might be in status epilepticus because of its anti-seizure effect. It can cause some hypotension and respiratory depression, which we know. Um, so you want to hopefully be able to establish that airway quickly after giving your midazolam. And then last but not least, um, propofol is probably a pretty common agent we see specifically in our trauma patient population because it's quick onset, quick duration of action. It actually does lower your ICP, so it's ideal probably for your isolated head injury patients. However, it can cause hypotension, so you kind of have to watch out for that if you give it to help with your ICPs. And it can cause some respiratory depression as well, but shouldn't be an issue as long as we establish that airway. Again, propofol, it actually is also a good choice for your status epilepticus patients because it does have anti-seizure effects. You always want to make sure you give your sedative before you give your neuromuscular blockade so that you don't paralyze your patient and they remember it. Are there any patients that require more medications than the sedatives for an RSI or do they always require a sedative and a paralytic? If your patient has a GCS of three and they are basically unresponsive, you can try to intubate, honestly, without any medicines. But if they, you go to place that tube and they gag, they cough, they bite, then that's kind of a sign that you're going to need some sedation. So you could try just a sedative. And if that keeps them calm enough for you to get that tube in, that airway secured, great. However, if you give a dose of sedative and... They start puking, gagging, coughing. Giving another dose of sedative probably isn't going to knock them out enough to secure that airway. So that's where then your paralytic comes into play. And you need to make sure you give your sedative, paralyze them, secure your airway, and then do your post-intubation care. That makes sense. So what's the next step after sedatives? So then after we push our sedative, we move into our fifth P, which is paralyzed. So that's where our neuromuscular blockers come into play. There are several neuromuscular blockers on the market. I was just going to focus on succinylcholine and rocuronium and vecuronium today, which are probably the three most common ones we use here um, and probably that you see commonly used throughout other facilities. Succinylcholine um, is our shortest-acting neuromuscular blocker. It has a very quick onset, about 30 to 60 seconds, and only lasts about 5 to 15 minutes, which is ideal for your rapid sequence intubation because if you have, you need to establish that airway as soon as possible once you paralyze the patient because they are obviously not going to do any breathing on their own. And then it also is short acting is helpful because then you can continue with your trauma assessment and figure out if the patient is not moving because they're 
paralyzed or because they have a head injury or such. It actually is probably the preferred paralytic because of its short duration of action. However, it does carry some weird side effects that would contraindicate it. So if you know your patient has any history of malignant hyperthermia or even a family history of malignant hyperthermia, then you're going to want to use vecuronium or rocuronium because that's one complication you don't want to go down um, with your trauma patient. The other thing to consider, it can cause hyperkalemia. So if your patient has some AKI or underlying hyperkalemia that you know of, or maybe if they have a burn injury or a crush injury where they might be more likely to have the cells lice and have the potassium um, get into the bloodstream, then you might want to consider a different agent. Kathy, would you please describe what a healthcare provider could see with malignant hypothermia? So malignant hyperthermia is kind of just a you get this rapid rise in your temperature. Your body kind of goes into a catabolic state. You'll see your significant, probably more so like muscle tightness. Your myoglobin in your CPK will rise. You'll see end tidal CO2 changes. It's most commonly associated probably with succinylcholine compared to your other neuromuscular blockers. It's a crisis situation. You need to treat it right away. The main treatment for it is actually dantrolene. There is a malignant hyperthermia hotline you can actually call if you feel your patient is experiencing malignant hyperthermia. And we're talking temperatures like 40, 41, 42 degrees Celsius. They get pretty high in a pretty rapid increase. You can see it sometimes delayed, but it's usually pretty frequent after your administration of a neuromuscular barricade or an inhaled gas that you might see more so in the OR, not so much with RSI. So you want to get the, the dantrolene started right away to decrease that muscle rigidity and hopefully reverse the malignant hyperthermia. The malignant hypothermia hotline is one 800 644 9737. That number again is 1 800 644 9737. You can also find it at mhaus.org on the web. And basically, what the hotline does is it connects you to a malignant hyperthermia expert or someone that has treated it several times and they'll guide you with what kind of therapy to use, what kind of labs to monitor to make sure you have resolution of the malignant hyperthermia. That malignant hypothermia hotline is a great resource for any ER or EMS service to have, just like poison control. One other question before we get back to our medication. When a patient presents requiring RSI, but they've also taken, for instance, methamphetamines, how does that affect the medications we're giving? I would say probably in that patient population, for the RSI induction dose, I don't usually see myself giving two more. What I see is that I need to start like a continuous sedation drip right away after securing that tube or securing that airway, I should say, to make sure that patient then stays down. Ketamine is actually sometimes a good agent for those patients because of its kind of different mechanism of action where it works on your NMDA receptors in that drug abuse patient population is kind of a receptor that maybe they haven't been saturated with other things. So compared to your propofol or your midazolam, which work on your benzodiazepine receptors. But yeah, usually what I see in that patient population is that once we secure that tube, we need to then sedate them pretty much right away so they don't pull out that tube. And finding that sedative, whether it's a propofol drip or a ketamine drip, that helps 
keep them sedated while we finish our workup and assessment and treating the rest of their injuries. Excuse me, the substances to wear off, and then we can wean them from the ventilator. After paralytics, what comes next? So after you paralyze the patient, that's where you actually come in and you pass the tube. So visualizing that tube, going through the vocal cords if you can. Once you think you have the tube in place, then you go to your P number seven, which is your proof of placement. However you choose to confirm, whether it's breath sounds and tidal CO2, obviously a chest x-ray once you get everything secure. Get them hooked up to a ventilator if possible, and then that's where you'd come into your assessment of do they need more continuous sedation so they're not trying to pull that tube out, fighting the ventilator, coughing, those kind of things. So after we've intubated the patient, what considerations should we have for continuing sedation and paralytics in the ER and during transport? So actually your first line is actually analgesia. Um, based on the side of critical care medicines. And you're right, sometimes you can combine the analgesia and sedatives. So like fentanyl is a great option um, when you're trying to get the patient here because it's going to give you, hopefully, it should give you pain and then hopefully sedation and it's kind of quick on, quick off so that way when the patient gets here, the team that's taking, if they're transferring, you can kind of do your own initial assessment neurologically which is pretty important in our trauma patient population. Um, the next line then would be a sedative. So honestly, my favorite sedative, if the patient can tolerate it, is usually propofol. It just kind of has that quick on, quick off. If they are hemodynamically stable, um, then I can work with it. Uh, if they're not hemodynamically unstable, then I usually kind of go to ketamine as a continuous infusion. I try and stay away from benzodiazepines just because of, there's several studies that show that they can actually increase the incidence of delirium. They're a little bit longer acting and can sometimes build up with repeat doses, so it kind of clouds our neuroassessment picture when the patient gets here. And then last but not least, if I don't have to give another dose of paralytic, I try not to. Now, from a transportation standpoint, sometimes the patients can get pretty agitated in flight that we need. It's more important to paralyze them so they don't cause further harm to themselves while in transit. I just want to make sure if I am going to give that paralytic that I am make sure I'm giving the sedation as opposed to just giving flat-out paralytics. Kathy, thanks for being on the show. And to our listeners, if you have any questions for Kathy or myself, you can reach me at Aaron.Sutton at WesleyMC.com. That's A-A-R-O-N dot S-U-T-T-O-N at WesleyMC.com. And you can find learning objectives for each episode at our landing page, WesleyTraumatalk.podbean.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.